Chapter 3, Part 1 of Bilby, A Holiday. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Frank Duncan. Bilby, A Holiday, by H.G. Wells. Chapter 3, Part 1, The Wanderers. Never had the gracious eastward face of Chance looked more beautiful than it did on the morning of the Lord Chancellor's visit. It glowed as translucent as amber lit by flames. Its two towers were pillars of pale gold. It looked over its slopes and parapets upon a great valley of mist-barred freshness, through which the distant river shone like a snake of light. The southwest façade was still in the shadow, and the ivy hung from it darkly greener than the greenest green. The stained-glass windows of the old chapel reflected the sunrise, as though lamps were burning inside. Along the terrace, a pensive peacock trailed his sheathed splendors through the dew. Amidst the ivy was a fuss of birds, and presently there was pushed out from amidst the ivy, at the foot of the eastward tower, a little brownish-buff thing that seemed as natural there as a squirrel or rabbit. It was a head, a ruffled human head. It remained still for a moment, contemplating the calm spaciousness of terrace and garden and countryside. Then it emerged further and rotated and surveyed the house above it. Its expression was one of alert caution. Its natural freshness and innocence were a little marred by an enormous transverse smudge, a bar sinister of smut, and the elfin delicacy of the left ear was festooned with a cobweb probably a genuine antique. It was the face of Bilby. He was considering the advisability of leaving Chance for good. Presently, his decision was made. His hands and shoulders appeared following his head, and then a dusty but undamaged Bilby was running swiftly towards the corner of the shrubbery. He crouched, lest at any moment that pursuing pack of butlers should see him and give tongue. In another moment, he was hidden from the house altogether, and rustling his way through a thicket of budding redondra, after those dirty passages, the morning air was wonderfully sweet, but just a trifle hungry. Grazing deer saw Bilby fly across the park, stared at him for a time, with great, gentle, unintelligent eyes, and went on feeding. They saw him stop, ever and again. He was snatching at mushrooms, that he devoured forthwith as he sped on. On the edge of the beech woods, he paused and glanced back at Chance. Then his eyes rested for a moment on the clump of trees through which one saw a scrap of the head gardener's cottage, a bit of the garden wall. A physiognomist might have detected a certain lack of self-confidence in Bilby's eyes, but his spirit was not to be quelled. Slowly, joylessly, perhaps, but with a grave determination, he raised his hand in the prehistoric gesture of the hand and face by which youth, since ever there was youth, has asserted the integrity of its soul against established and predominant things. Catch me, said Bilby. Bilby left Chance about half past four in the morning. He went westward because he liked the company of his shadow and was amused at first by its vast length. By half past eight he had covered ten miles, and he was rather bored by his shadow. He had eaten nine raw mushrooms, two green apples, and a quantity of unripe blackberries. None of these things seemed quite at home in him, 
and he had discovered himself to be wearing slippers. They were stout carpet slippers, but still they were slippers, and the road was telling on them. At the ninth mile, the left one began to give on the outer seam. He got over a stile into a path that ran through the corner of a wood, and there he met a smell of frying bacon that turned his very soul to gastric juice. He stopped short and sniffed the air, and the air itself was sizzling. Oh, crikey, said Bilby, manifestly to the spirit of the world. This is a bit too strong. I wasn't thinking much before. Then he saw something bright and yellow and bulky just over the hedge. From this, it was the sound of frying came. He went to the hedge, making no effort to conceal himself. Outside a great yellow caravan with dainty little windows stood a largest dark woman in a deerstalker hat, a short brown skirt, a large white apron, and spatterdashes, among other things, frying bacon and potatoes in a frying pan. She was very red in the face, and the frying pan was spitting at her, as frying pans do at a timid cook. Quite mechanically, Bilby scrambled through the hedge and drew nearer this divine smell. The woman scrutinized him for a moment, and then blinking and averting her face, went on with her cookery. Bilby came quite close to her and remained, noting the bits of potato that swam above in the pan, the jolly curling of the rashers, the dancing of the bubbles, the hemming splash and splutter of the happy fat. If it should ever fall to my lot to be cooked, may I be fried in potatoes and butter, May I be fried with potatoes and good butter made from the milk of the cow. God send I am spared boiling, the prison of the pot, the rattling lid, the evil darkness, the greasy water. I suppose, said the lady prodding with her fork at the bacon, I suppose you call yourself a boy. Yes, miss, said Bilby. Have you ever fried? I could, miss. Like this? Better. Just lay hold of this handle, for it's scorching the skin off my face I am. She seemed to think for a moment and added, Entirely. In silence, Bilby grasped that exquisite smell by the handle. He took the fork from her hand and put his hungry, eager nose over the seething mess. It wasn't only bacon. There were onions. Onions giving it an edge. It cut to the quick of appetite. He would have wept with intensity of his sensations. A voice almost as delicious as the smell came out of the caravan window behind Bilby's head. Judy, cried the voice. Here, I mean, it's here I am, said the lady in the deerstalker. Judy, you didn't take my stockings for your own by any chance. The lady in the deerstalker gave way to a delighted horror. Shh, Mavernine, she cried. She was one of that large class of amiable women who are more Irish than they need be. There's a boy here. There was, indeed, an almost obsequiously industrious and obliging boy. An hour later, he was no longer a boy, but the boy, and three friendly women were regarding him with a merited approval. He had done the frying, renewed a wanting fire with remarkable skill and dispatch, reboiled a neglected kettle in the shortest possible time, laid almost without direction a simple meal, very exactly set out the camp stools, and cleaned the frying pan marvelously. Hardly had they taken their portions of that appetizing savoriness 
than he had whipped off with that implement, gone behind the caravan, busied himself there, and returned with the pan, glittering bright, himself if possible brighter, one cheek indeed shone with an animated glow. But wasn't there some of the bacon and stuff left? asked the lady in the deerstalker. I didn't think it was wanted, miss, said Bilby, so I cleared it up. He met understanding in her eye. He questioned her expression. Mayn't I wash up for you, miss? He asked to relieve the tension. He washed up swiftly and cleanly. He had never been able to wash up to Mr. Mergelson's satisfaction before, but now he did everything Mr. Mergelson had ever told him. He asked where to put the things away, and he put them away. Then he asked politely if there was anything else he could do for them. Questioned, he said he liked doing things. You haven't, said the lady in the deerstalker. A taste for cleaning boots? Bilby declared he had. Surely, said a voice that Bilby adored, tis an angel from heaven. He had a taste for cleaning boots. This was an extraordinary thing for Bilby to say. But a great change had come to him in the last half hour. He was violently anxious to do things, any sort of things, servile things, for a particular person. He was in love. The owner of the beautiful voice had come out of the caravan. She had stood for a moment in the doorway before descending the steps to the ground, and the soul of Bilby had bowed down before her in instant submission. Never had he seen anything so lovely. Her straight, slender body was sheathed in a blue, fair hair, a little tinged with red, poured gloriously back from her broad forehead, and she had the sweetest eyes in the world. One hand lifted her dress from her feet. The other rested on the lintel of the caravan door. She looked at him and smiled. So for two years she looked and smiled across the footlights to the bilby in mankind. She had smiled now on her entrance out of habit. She took the effect upon bilby as a foregone conclusion. Then she had looked to make sure that everything was ready before she descended. How good it smells, Judy, she had said. I've had a helper, said the woman who wore spats. That time the blue-eyed lady had smiled at him quite definitely. The third member of the party had appeared unobserved. The irritations of the beautiful lady had obscured her. Bilby discovered her about. She was bareheaded, she wore a simple gray dress with a Norfolk jacket, and she had a pretty clear white profile under black hair. She answered to the name of Winnie. The beautiful lady was Madeline. They made little obscure jokes with each other and praised the morning ardently. This is the best place of all, said Madeline. All night, said Winnie. Not a single mosquito. None of these three ladies made any attempt to conceal the sincerity of their hunger or their appreciation of Bilby's assistance. How good a thing is appreciation. Here he was doing, with joy and pride and eager excellence, the very services he had done so badly under the cuffings of Mergelson and Thomas. And now Bilby, having been regarded with approval for some moments in disgust in tantalizing undertones, was called upon to explain himself. Boy, said the lady in the deerstalker, who was evidently the leader and still more evidently the spokeswoman of the party, come here. Yes, miss, he put down the boot he was cleaning on the caravan step. In the first place, know by these presents, I am a married woman. Yes, miss. And miss is not a seemly mode of address for me. No, miss. I mean, Bilby hung for a moment. And by the happiest of accidents, a scrap of his instruction at Chance came up in his mind. 
No, he said, your ladyship. A great light shone on the spokeswoman's face. Not yet, my child, she said. Not yet. He hasn't done his duty by me. I am a simple mum. Bilby was intelligently silent. Say, yes, mum? Yes, mum, said Bilby, and everybody laughed very agreeably. And now, said the lady, taking pleasure in his words, know by these presents, by the by, what is your name? Bilby scarcely hesitated. Dick Maltravers, mum, he said, and almost added, the dauntless daredevil of the Diamond Fields horse, which was the second title. Dick will do, said the lady, who was called Judy, and added suddenly, and very amusingly, you may keep the rest. These were the sort of people Bilby liked, the right sort. Well, Dick, we want to know, have you ever been in service? It was sudden, but Bilby was equal to it. Only for a day or two, miss. I mean, mum, just to be useful. Were you useful? Bilby tried to think whether he had been, and could recall nothing but the face of Thomas, with the fork hanging from it. I did my best, mum, he said impartially. And all that is over? Yes, mum. And you're at home again, and out of employment? Yes, mum. Do you live near here? No, leastways, not very far. With your father? Stepfather, mum. I'm a orphan. Well, how would you like to come with us for a few days and help with things? Seven and sixpence a week. Bilby's face was eloquent. Would your stepfather object? Bilby considered. I don't think he would, he said. You'd better go round and ask him. I suppose yes, he said. And get a few things. Things, mum? Collars and things. You needn't bring a great box for such a little while. Yes, mum. He hovered rather undecidedly. Better run along now. Our man and horse will be coming presently. We shan't be able to wait for you long. Bilby assumed a sudden briskness and departed. At the gate of the field he hesitated almost imperceptibly and then directed his face to the Sabbath stillness of the village. Perplexity corrugated his features. The stepfather's permission presented no difficulties, but it was more difficult about the luggage. A voice called after him, Yes, mum, he said attentive and hopeful. Perhaps, somehow, they wouldn't want luggage. You'll want boots. You'll have to walk by the caravan, you know. You'll want some good stout boots. All right, mum, he said with a sorrowful break in his voice. He waited a few moments, but nothing more came. He went on, very slowly. He had forgotten about the boots. That defeated him. It is hard to be refused admission to paradise for the want of a handbag and a pair of walking boots. Bilby was by no means certain that he was going back to the caravan. He wanted to do so quite painfully, but he'd just look a fool going back without boots, and nothing on earth would reconcile him to the idea of looking a fool in the eyes of that beautiful woman in blue. Dick, he whispered to himself despondently, daredevil Dick. A more miserable-looking face you never set eyes on. It's all up with your little schemes, Dick, my boy. You must get a bag, and nothing on earth will get you a bag.
He paid little heed to the village through which he wandered. He knew there were no bags there. Chance rather than any volation of his own guided him down a side path that led to the nearly dry bed of a little rivulet, and there he sat down on some weedy grass under a group of willows. It was an untidy place that needed all the sunshine of the morning to be tolerable. One of those places where stinging nettles take heart, and people throw old kettles, broken gallopets, jaded gravel, grass cuttings, rusty rubbish, old boots. For a time, Bilby's eyes rested on the objects with an entire lack of interest. Then he was reminded of his not-so-very-remote childhood, when he had found an old boot and made it into a castle. Presently he got up and walked across to the rubbish heap and surveyed its treasures with a quickened intelligence. He picked up a widowed boot and weighed it in his hand. He dropped it abruptly, turned about, and hurried back into the village street. He had ideas, two ideas, one for the luggage and one for the boots. If only he could manage it. Hope beat his great pinions in the heart of Bilby. Sunday, the shops were shut. Yes, that was a fresh obstacle. He had forgotten that. The public house stood bashfully open, the shy, uninviting openness of Sunday morning, before closing time. But public houses, alas, at all hours are forbidden to little boys. And besides, he wasn't likely to get what he wanted in a public house. He wanted a shop. A general shop, and here before him was the general shop, and its door ajar. His desire carried him over the threshold. The sabbatical shutters made the place dark and cool, and the smell of bacon and cheese and chandeliers, the very spirit of grocery, calm and unhurried, was cool and sabbatical, too, as if it sat there for the day in its best clothes and a pleasant woman was talking over the counter to a thin and worried one who carried a bundle. Their intercourse had a flavor of emergency, and they both stopped abruptly at the appearance of Bilby. His desire, his craving was now so great that it had altogether subdued the natural weariness of his appearance. He looked meek, he looked good, he was swimming in propitiation, and tender with respect. He produced an effect of being much smaller, he had got nice eyes. His movements were refined and his manners perfect. Not doing business today, my boy, said the pleasant woman. Oh, please em, he said from his heart. Sunday, you know. Oh, please em, if you could just give me a nulled sheet of paper em, please. What for? asked the pleasant woman. Just to wrap something up em. She reflected, and natural goodness had its way with her. A nice big bit, said the woman. Please em. Would you like it brown? Oh, please em. And you got some string? Only cottony stuff, said Bilby, disemboweling a trouser pocket, with knots, but I dessay I can manage. You'd better have a bit of good string with it, my dear, said the pleasant woman, whose generosity was now fairly on the run. Then you can do your parcel up and nice and tidy. The white horse was already in the shafts of the caravan, and William, a deaf and clumsy man of uncertain age and a vast, sharp nosiness, was lifting in the basket of breakfast gear and grumbling in undertones at the wickedness and unfairness of traveling on Sunday when Bilby returned to gladden the three waiting women. Ah, said the inconspicuous lady, 
I knew he'd come. Look at his poor little precious Parsifal, said the actress. Regarded as luggage, it was rather pitiful. A knobby, brown paper parcel about the size, to be perfectly frank, of a tin can. Two old boots and some grass, very carefully folded and tied up, and carried gingerly. But, the lady in the deerstalker began, and then paused. Dick, she said, as he came nearer, where's your boots? Oh, please, mum, said the dauntless one. They was away being mended. My stepfather thought perhaps you wouldn't mind if I didn't have boots. He said perhaps I might be able to get some more boots out of my salary. The lady in the deerstalker looked alarmingly uncertain, and Bilby controlled infinite distresses. Haven't you got a mother, Dick? asked the beautiful voice suddenly. Its owner abounded in such spasmodic curiosities. She, last year, matricide is a painful business at any time, and just as you see, in spite of every effort you have made, the jolliest lark in the world slipping out over your reach, and the sweet voice so sorry for him, so sorry. Bilby suddenly veiled his face with his elbow and gave way to honorable tears. A simultaneous desire to make him happy, help him to forget his loss, possessed three women. That'll be all right, Dick, said the lady in the deerstalker, patting his shoulder. We'll get you some boots tomorrow, and today you must sit up beside William and spare your feet. You'll have to go to the ends with him. It's wonderful, the elasticity of youth, said the inconspicuous lady five minutes later. To see that boy now, you'd never imagine he had a sorrow in the world. Now get up there, said the lady who was the leader. We shall walk across the fields and join you later. You understand where you are to wait for us, William. She came nearer and shouted. You understand, William? William nodded ambiguously. Ain't a fool, he said. The ladies departed. You'll be all right, Dick, cried the actress kindly. He sat up where he had been put, trying to look as orphan Dick as possible after all that had occurred. End of chapter 3 Part 1